What blessed truths those are that we've just uh, affirmed together of how we are complete in Christ and in Him alone. Nothing we can contribute of our own merit or worth can contribute to that. Well, beloved, there we're going to look at a message this morning that continues our study of 1 John, entitled The Assurance That God Provides. We'll be looking at verses 18 and 20 this morning. But before we dig into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you please join me in prayer? Our Lord, our God, we want to rejoice in you, our Savior. Lord, thank you for working a salvation that is completely of you. For there could be no other way. There could be no other way that we could be made perfect. You are righteous and holy God. A God who does not overlook indefinitely the the sin of the world. You are a God of justice and righteousness. And you have dealt decisively with our sin. Lord, you have sought us out while we were yet enemies of the cross of Christ and enemies of the truth of God. And you have sought us out. You loved us before we loved you. And Lord God, we just want to affirm your work in our lives. We want to proclaim Christ our Savior and rejoice in him that we are complete in him. We want to thank you, Lord, that that no merit of our own is required to enter heaven because then none of us would enter. None of us would be perfected, completed. We want to rejoice in you that justification is is solely your act, an act of declaration. We want to thank you that sanctification is a work that you have begun in each true child of yours that you will complete, that you will bring about complete Christ-likeness and maturity in us and uh, in our lives because you have promised to do so and you are faithful and righteous. Lord God, we thank you for this text of Scripture that you have given us, for this letter that through the Apostle John you have given us to assure the salvation of those who are truly yours. Lord God, just use us in our lives, helping us to understand, helping each person who is here and who hears this message to understand whether they are in Christ or not. And if not, Lord, may they repent of their sins and truly believe in you. And for those that are in Christ, Lord, may they be encouraged and edified through your word and just help them to rejoice in you because of your work in their lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, please turn to 1 John chapter 5. We are nearing the completion of this uh, epistle. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the last verse of 1 John 5, verse 21. But this morning... We're going to return to the subject of the assurance that God provides. We live in a world of uncertainty. But like many things, it doesn't tell you that it's necessarily uncertain. The uncertainty of the world often masquerades as certainty. And conjecture is pandered as fact. As an example, uh, just... I should say two years ago now, in 2018, American scientist Francis Arnold won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, along with George Smith and Gregory Winter for the research on enzymes. You probably didn't, again, it's one of those research projects that you probably didn't hear anything about, but these uh, scientists won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for the research on enzymes. And with that same clout, she co-wrote a subsequent paper in 2019 that was published in the Journal of Science in May. And on January 2nd, Mrs. Arnold announced that she retracted, she has retracted this article that was written back in May because as the BBC reported, the results are not reproducible and the authors found data missing from a lab notebook, unquote. So here you have a Nobel Prize winning scientist admitting that something she wrote that was really um, supported by the Journal of Science, so you would think that it had been vetted properly, turns out not to be true. In this case, the authors in the Journal of Science did not intentionally seek to report something as untrue when it was not. 
so we appreciate their honesty for coming out with that. But notice that they just didn't exercise great enough diligence in their research and the vetting of that research. And while this case of a discovery that wasn't, didn't impact my life or your life, that's not always the case. How many times have we been told from medicine that something is good for us or something is bad for us only years later to have that decision reversed? Happens far too often. Well, the certainties that God provides His children are not like that. They aren't just thought to be true. They are genuinely, factually, and eternally true. And we're going to continue looking this morning at the, the certainties that God provides His children in the, really the conclusion of 1 John 5. As John closes his epistle, he brings to our remembrance the things that he wants us to be certain of. And, and we get this in 1 John 5. And I'll just read verses 13 to 21. We'll be looking at really focusing on verses 19 to 20, but I want us to get the whole context. So we'll read verses 13 to 21 of 1 John 5. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. May the Lord bless uh, His word in our lives this morning. We're looking, beloved, at the blessed assurance that God provides those who are truly His children. And I just want to review some of the things that we've covered. I'm only going to review them briefly. If you want more details on this, certainly feel free to ask me afterwards. Uh, But you can also download the messages that I preached uh, previously on these things. From verse 13, we see that God wants to assure His children that they have eternal life. God has given us his children, the letter of 1 John, to assure our hearts. That is the purpose of this letter. It's the overarching purpose of the letter. And his children are specifically identified as those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And these children of God are to know that they have eternal life without question. All right, we went into some detail about that several weeks ago. Secondly, God wants to assure His children that He will answer their prayer. And John covered this in verses 14 to 17. God's children are to have confidence before God. And that's a confidence that the Lord will hear their prayers. And it's a confidence that the Lord will answer their prayers. And those are prayers that are in accordance with His will. And he gives an example of answered prayer or the confidence in answered prayer in those verses. Then from verse 18, several weeks ago, we saw that God wants to assure His children that He's given them victory over sin and Satan. He's given them victory over sin and Satan. This is something that He wants His children to be assured of, to be confident of. God's children do not live an unbroken pattern of sin. Right? Just to emphasize, we are not sinless. If we say we are without sin, we make God a liar and His truth is not in us. So John is not arguing per, for perfection at all. He is arguing that true children of God don't live in a, in a pattern of sin. He says in sin, meaning an unbroken pattern of sin. Believers sin, but our sin is broken 
by repentance. It's not an ongoing thing in our lives, and it is, uh, it is not something that has dominion over us, which cannot be said of an unbeliever. An unbeliever is under the dominion, as we'll see, of Satan and also of sin. An unbeliever cannot help but sin. A believer has been freed from sin through Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, but are made slaves unto God, unto righteousness. So, so we know that, that God's children do not live in that unbroken pattern of sin. And, and the reason for that is because of what John says in verse 18, that he who is born of God keeps him. That is, Christ works in our lives to protect us and to keep us not only from sin, but from the power of Satan, of the evil one. The evil one does not touch him. So those are the three certainties uh, that, that we've looked at in the past. And this morning, we are going to look at two more. Namely, from verse 19, the assurance that, that God's children are truly of God. And again, again, John is working to be very clear. Um, he is repeating himself. And he just, he's, these things are all related together. But he wants us to know. He says in verse 19, we know we are of God. And that is his main point. That We'll get into the details of that in a moment. And the fifth assurance is that Jesus is indeed the true God and eternal life. And we'll see that from verse 20. Well, let's dig into the details of verse 19. God wants to assure his children that they are of God. He doesn't want his children to be in doubt about this. Look, look at what John says in verse 19. He says he begins with the familiar phrase, we know. We know. How often in this epistle does John go back to what we know? He says we know this. It is confident. It is true. It is assured. And it's not assured just because, because John thinks it's so. It's assured and true because it has been revealed to him by Christ and ultimately from the Holy Spirit. This is inspired text of Scripture. So this knowledge is true knowledge. It's absolute knowledge. It's certain knowledge. It's not knowledge that is subject to correction or amendment later, like so many things we think we know today. It is not, it is not knowledge that's going to change. It's the kind of knowledge that you can bet your life on, your eternal uh, life on. The Holy Spirit has given the Apostle John what believers need to be confident of. And, and here, he's saying that he wants us to know that we are truly of God. That is true believers. Now, again, if, we, if you have been with us through the teaching of 1 John, you're, you're going to say, well, yeah, this sounds vaguely familiar. And, it's, and you're right. John is repeating himself. So I'm repeating myself. And these things are related to things that he said earlier. And as I mentioned before, John writes this epistle in sort of a spiral fashion. In, in a Western world, we like linear thought. We like building on one thing and then moving on to the next. That's not how John is writing here. He is writing in what we could best picture as a spiral. And each time he goes around the circle, he's not just repeating himself word for word, but he finds new ways to repeat himself for greater emphasis and then adding depth to that. And here in, in the conclusion of this epistle, we shouldn't be surprised that he is repeating himself again. We are of God. He says, we know that we are of God. Literally, the text says, to add emphasis to it, he says, literally, we know, we know of God we are. Right? Kind of de-emphasizing us and emphasizing uh, the source of, of where we come from. And that is of God. And I say of source, not just speaking physically and biologically, but speaking spiritually of the new birth. And John has mentioned this many times in this epistle. Many, many Bible scholars see, join, see John pointing us here to the fact that true believers, that is all true children of God, are born of Him. That is, they have their spiritual source in Him. There is no one who is a Christian who doesn't also have the new birth or isn't also born again. That isn't something you seek later. 
And what John tells us here, that true believers are of God, aligns with much of what he said before. Again, I I mentioned that he's repeating himself, but uh, I'll just review these things. In 1 John 3, verse 9, he says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Another place where he mentions this idea of being born of God, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. 1 John 5, 3. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And 1 John 5, 18, which we previously looked at, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So John is emphasizing the fact that we are to know it. It's not just that we are born and we're kept in a, in a, um, a cloud of doubt. We are born again. True believers are born again. And God wants us to know that, to know that, to have confidence in that. We should not overlook the application that not only are we born of God, but as believers, we are God's possession. We are his children. He brought us to spiritual rebirth through faith in in Jesus Christ, and we are now his. And that plays into the context of of protecting those who, who are his and being under his dominion and not under the dominion of the evil one. This is why God protects us. This is why the Savior protects us and and keeps us from the evil one. Now think about what John is telling us here. You can really know that you've been born of God and are His possession. Don't overlook the fact that John puts himself in the same position as his listeners. I mean, we can look at verse 19 and just say, We know we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We kind of move on without giving it much thought. But think about the simple wording here given to John by the Holy Spirit. We know. What, who, who is writing this? The Apostle John. Okay, I'll give you a simple question, but it's with intention and purpose. The Apostle is putting himself with you and me, shoulder to shoulder, in the same seat spiritually. We know that we are of God. Think about what he's telling you. He is telling you that you have the same, as a true child of God, if you're a believer in Christ today, you are to have the same confidence of salvation, the same confidence that you are of God that the apostle had. No difference. No difference. That's amazing. And James Boyce draws this down. He says this, and I quote, here is, the apostles, here is the apostles' switch to the first person plural we in verse, in verse 18. And he says, this is most encouraging, for he wishes to show that in this point, even the most normal Christian can have assurance that differs neither in nature nor in degree from the assurance possessed by the apostles. Indeed, we, no less than they, can know that we are truly God's children, unquote. You see, there are some people who say that, well, they have to see. If they could just see Christ or see God, then they would believe and they would have assurance. But that is not the faith that produces salvation. You see, the, the masses who asked Jesus for a sign during the, eight, during the days of his earthly um, ministry said that, this, that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The Lord wants you to hear his word and believe it. We are to know with the same kind of confidence that the apostles knew that they were truly of God. Now, I just want to belabor this just a moment and ask, well, well, how do we know? How do we know that we are truly God's children? John doesn't address that. He does in the greater epistle, which I'll show you in a moment. But how do we know? Are we to look for some mystical experience? Are we to expect some visit from heaven from an angel? Are we to expect, uh, rather than go the other way, perhaps we're to visit heaven before 
the days of our earthly death? Are we to expect some mountaintop emotional experience, whether it's on a physical mountaintop or, for example, in a church worship service? Or is that how we're to know that we're truly God's children? Beloved, let me say, no, and no, and no. John tells us in this epistle how we are to know that we are truly of God. We are to know that we are of God by applying the theological and the moral tests of faith that, that are provided to us in this letter of 1 John. We don't have, we're not left to guess. We can just read this epistle and apply the test. Some are moral tests, some are theological tests, but apply these tests to your life. If you, if you pass the test then you can truly know that you are of God, that you are His child, that you have been born again, and what confidence that brings. And, and oh, by the way, if your confidence brings you to the point of saying, well, since I'm God's child, I can sin any way I want to, I would dare say you have misunderstood the test of faith, and I fear that you are not really saved at all. How, how could a child of God who loves the Father run headlong into sin, saying, oh, Christ has forgiven my sins, I can live any way I want to. That kind of person is on the, on the brink of great disaster. And they may not even be saved. God's children, those who are truly His children, are concerned about their sin. They don't want to sin, even though at times they do. So what do you do if you, if you take the test of faith given to us in John, and you just come out saying, according to John's message, I'm not a believer. I, I don't possess. Even though I would profess to be a believer, I don't pass the test that John provides. What do you do? Do you, do you lose hope? Do you just give up and say, I guess I'm not good enough? No, beloved. What I would say is, first of all, give thanks to God. Give thanks for what? Give thanks that He's giving you the clarity to understand your spiritual situation. There are just so many people who go through life thinking that they are saved when they are not. Jesus Himself said this in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And he adds this, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. So, beloved, if you realize that you are not a true Christian, that you are not born of God, that you are not a possessor of eternal life, then by the authority of God vested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I plead you with you to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, even today. Jesus, in that same passage in Matthew 7, says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet, they did, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell and great was its fall. And that fall will be great for many who think they are saved but are not. So if you're here this morning and you realize that you do not pass the test of faith, both moral and theological, that John provides in this letter, thank the Lord for that clarity. But don't stop there. Call upon Him. As, as John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 tells us, that as many as received Him, to, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So God's will is that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you be saved. As 1 John 2.2 tells us, 
Jesus is the Savior of the world, that He is the propitiation for our sins. And you must trust Him, and in Him alone, as we sung earlier. And then you must trust the Scriptures. Scriptures like Romans chapter 10, verse 11, which tells us that the Scriptures say, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and trust Him in Him fully. Right? God's children are to know that they are of God. And again, if you are here this morning and you're not, you're not sure that you are of God, call upon Him and trust Him. For He is a God who longs to save and to transform you. So John tells us in verse 19 that we know we are of God, but that's not all. He says, also says this in the second half of the verse. God's children are to know that they do not lie in the power of the evil one. And John states it in a negative way. He says this, but he goes, the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, beloved, understand how John is using the word world here. The context tells us that John's not referring to physical creation or even to the sea of humanity, which would include everyone, even believers. Since, since the world lies in the power of the evil, and we must understand the world here refers to the evil system that is opposed to God. The fact that the first part of verse 19 speaks of human beings, that is, we know that we, that no, sorry, we, know that we are of God, speaking of those who believe in Christ, speaking of humans, leads us to, to believe that John has in mind in the latter part of verse 19 with the word world that he's referring to human beings who are opposed to God, who are estranged from the God. Thus the word world here specifically refers to all human beings who are estranged from God and who are in the power of the evil one. We know this from the context because John is telling us in verse 18, uh, he says that he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So, so the, the whole world in, of verse 19 doesn't include those who are of God, those who are children of God, uh, outlined in verse 18 and the first part of verse 19. One commentator describes John's use of the word world, the term world this way. He says this, and I quote, Here the meaning is definitely negative. The world is human society temporarily in the grip of the power of evil and organized in opposition to God. It thus excludes orthodox believers, unquote. So we need to understand that John is drawing a stark contrast between those who are of God and those who are in the power of the evil one. Notice, notice that he doesn't say those who are of Satan. He's, he's not saying that they are created by Satan. He's just highlighting the fact that they are, that the world is under the power of the evil one. And there's really no one outside these two groups. He's drawing a, a, big, a big bucket, if you will, and he's putting everybody into one of those two buckets. Either you are of God... Or you lie in the power of the evil one. And John is using the adjective there, whole, to emphasize this fact. There are no exceptions to this. Now, we need to look at the term there in the latter part of verse 19 when he says the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Literally, this verse reads, the, 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 you could say, the, word, the world whole in the evil one. Excuse me. In the evil one lies. Now, if you are reading the New American Standard Bible or the ESV, you notice that those translations add the words the power of. And in the, at least in the New American Standard Bible, they are italicized. So the, the intent is to tell us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The word lie is used literally to describe someone in a reclining position, such as Jesus as an infant, as a newborn, lying in a manger. 
from Luke 2 or lying in the grave from Matthew 28. We know he didn't stay there, but while his body was lying, it's the same term that is used. This term is used metaphorically to, to, of things that, that, that are put on something, such as the spiritual veil that lies over the heart, which Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. But it is also used metaphorically to describe someone in a certain state or condition. Someone who is in a certain state or condition. And that's how John is using the verb here in verse 19. About this, this term lie, Donald Burdick explains that the word lies suggests that the world is passive and under the control of the devil. Thus the unsaved people of the world are helpless under Satan's power, unquote. And unless you think that it's some kind of exaggeration, we'll just hear from a few other voices on this. D. Edmund Hebert agrees with this assessment and argues, quote, the present tense verb lieth, or lies, which basically means to lie or recline, pictures the world as characteristically non-resistant to and passively dependent upon the power that grips the lost masses of humanity, the power John identifies here as the wicked one, unquote. This wicked one or evil one is described by one commentator as, quote, the one who controls the whole world with tyrannical authority, organizing and orchestrating its life and activities to express his own rebellion and hatred against God. And we need to understand that the evil one is a direct reference to Satan, who is the wicked one, <clears throat> John isn't just saying that the whole world lies in wickedness, though that's true, but that it lies in the grip and power of the evil one, Satan. Now, John is not saying that everybody in the world recognizes this. Very few do. Most of the world thinks that, that, it, that, it, uh, it is, that they're free thinkers. They don't see themselves as under Satan's influence and control. They see themselves as free thinkers or perhaps as religious or perhaps uh, good enough so they don't need a savior in their own words. Or they see themselves as independent from any kind of spiritual ruler. They think of, them, they think of that as kind of old-fashioned and unscientific and so they, they, just, they just see uh, the physical realm only. And so they totally deny this. They totally deny that that they are under Satan's rule. Yet scripture is very clear about this. Very clear. It is very clear about Satan's temporary earthly reign of terror over all those who are not truly God's children. I emphasize those points. Temporary earthly reign. And it is a reign of terror, mind you. Scripture is very clear about this. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded as describing Satan as, and I quote, the ruler of this world, unquote. Three times. Right? So if Jesus says something three times, we need to pay attention to what he says. I mean, we should pay attention if he only said it once. But the fact that he repeated it at least three times, three times recorded for us in the Gospel of John for us to read, tells us that that, that, that is indeed who he is. And there's great emphasis. Why do you think that the Apostle Peter says that Satan is prowling around as a lion seeking someone to devour. The Apostle Paul describes Satan as, quote, the God of this world, unquote, who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And when he uses the word, the God of this world, he's not saying he is, he is God of the capital G. It's, he's just saying he's the ruler of this world, <clears throat> So very similar terminology that, as to what Jesus used. Paul acknowledged the evil intent and control that Satan has over those who are estranged from him. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, we read this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. Now listen, verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Right? That last phrase, having been held captive by him to do his will. 
is a, is a good picturesque way to describe what John says when he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in his power. They're held captive by his power to, for, to do his will. Again, they, they think that they're doing their will, but they're actually doing his will. He is the one orchestrating that. So, so understand that the Apostle John here is, is not joking and he's not exaggerating or using scare tactics here. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And as, as Pastor MacArthur warns, there is nothing in this world, there is nothing about it that is not under Satan's control. It's economics, it's politics, it's religion, it's education, it's everything. It's entertainment, it's athletics, it's everything, everything, everything. It is a system that is completely contaminated, unquote. Which is why John says that we are not to love the world. So, beloved, John is clearly telling believers, they they are to know they are of God. And you are either of God, meaning you are his child and possess eternal life, or you are under Satan's power, under his control, being directed to do his will. And you might have a wonderful life now, but you will not in the future if you are controlled by Satan. If you are of God, you have been freed from Satan's tyranny. And his control. And Satan cannot touch you. And God wants those who have been born again to know this with confidence that they are of God. They are his special possession. That you are his people. Paul tells us something similar in Titus 2 verse 14. Which tells us that Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. The Apostle Peter explains in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that you, meaning true believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. If you pass the moral and doctrinal test, John provides in 1 John then God wants to assure you that you are His, that you are of God. And if you know this, then proclaim God's excellencies for providing you with salvation and the confidence of that salvation. Oh, beloved, what a, what a glorious and encouraging truth this is. God wants you to know as His child that you are truly of Him. But that's not all. In verse 20, we see the, really the fifth overall assurance that, that God provides His children. And, and that is that God assures His children that Jesus is true God in eternal life. Again, these things are related. They're not clearly distinct, but He is drawing out the highlight for us. Again, we know. Notice that. Verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, and we know. Right? So many times he repeats this for our benefit and our edification. John again reiterates the truths that we know as believers, that we know as true children of God. This is his last iteration of the fact of what we know. And John reminds us of several key truths that we know, but I'll just encapsulate them into one statement. God wants to assure his children that Jesus is is the true God in eternal life. And he says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Now, beloved, understand when we use the term Son of God, you have to think, don't think biologically, you think theologically. This is a theological statement. The term Son of God is a direct claim to deity. So this is a a direct claim that Jesus is indeed God. The declaration that the the Son of God has come ties directly back to the incarnation. There were those then, in John's time, like there are those today who deny the incarnation. They deny that the Son of God has come. But when they do this, they make God a liar. And of course, God never lies. But when they deny the incarnation, they, they... The end result is that they make God a liar. God wants us to know the truth that the Son of God has come. And the Son of God has become 
God with us, Emmanuel. And if you are his child today, you already know this. This is just a reminder of what we confidently know. And if you are someone who denies the incarnation, you must stop calling God a liar and believe what we are told in the scriptures that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ through the virgin birth, through Mary, that he is the savior of the world and you are to believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And I would just plead with you today, if that is you, that you would hear my words as though God were making an appeal through me today. I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The declaration that the Son of God has come is not all that John wants us to know. He says, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. He has given us understanding. And this is, a, this is a succinct reference to the work of Jesus in giving us the capacity to understand through the new birth. As the Apostle Paul relates, uh, tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says there, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So, beloved, understand that, that if, if we know that, that the Son of God has come and we have understanding, know that, that that understanding is not of your own smartness or your own doing. It is God working in our lives through belief in Jesus Christ, the new birth that enables you to understand. But it's also a reference to the work of Jesus in explaining to us who the Father is. That is why He has come. The only way that we could have accurate knowledge of God, our Heavenly Father, and of sin and the way of salvation is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The work of Jesus in explaining the Father to us uh, is, is what He came to do. It's the only way we have accurate knowledge. John, The Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. No one has seen Him. If someone claims to have another way to God, don't believe them. They're lying. It doesn't matter whether they're religious or not. Mostly they, they are religious. Whether it's through New Age, uh, New Age religion or whether it's through Scientology or whether it's through Buddhism or, or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or Islam, don't believe them. They do not know God. The only one who knows the Father intimately is the Son. Scriptures clearly say that. 1 John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that is Jesus, He has explained Him. And the word explained there, as I, as I mentioned in the past, means exposited Him. Jesus has exposited. He has, he has brought out the richness of who the Father is to us so that we might know Him. And John adds to this that we know the Son of God has come and He's given us understanding so that, here is the purpose statement, we know, we know why the Son of God came and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, so that we might know the true God. As John is reiterated in, in this very epistle, we need to understand that there are many who vie for our attention. There are many who say they are true. There are many, many are the way, ones who say that they have the way to God. But there is only one true way. We, we, we need to understand when John uses the word true here, he's using it in the sense of genuine or real versus that which is false and fake. Because as John warns us in 1 John 21, there are many false gods who project themselves as true. That's, that's why he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. We'll dig more into that next week. We know that the evil one masquerades as an angel of light. Scripture tells us that. And he longs for you to worship him as God or to worship something else other than the one true God. But Satan is not true. He is false. Who is the one who is true? Who is the one true God? The God who created the universe. The one true God who created you. That is the God who sent His Son into the world so that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. 
And thus, as John says, we are to know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. When John uses the phrase, in Him, we need to see this as a reference to being saved and being in Christ. In Him who is true, that is, in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you are a true child of God, if you are a possessor of eternal life, then you are in Christ. And in this we can rejoice, because as Paul says in in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we can rejoice in this. Therefore, we know, therefore, there is no, sorry, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, you are of God and there is no condemnation. Your sins have been justified and you will be fully sanctified and glorified. One commentator highlights that we truly know God as we are in His Son, Jesus Christ. Which which is why we cannot know God without Jesus Christ. Another commentator says this. He says, The deepest level of awareness of God is achieved only by intimate communion with the Son. The deepest level of awareness of God is achieved only by intimate communion with the Son. And we're told of the Son through the Scriptures. And that's why John leads us in the, at the end of verse 9. In verse 20, he says, um, We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. So we know that Jesus Christ is the true God in eternal life. He's, he's not just a prophet, though He was that. He's not just a good teacher, though He was that. He is God. He is God, beloved. Anyone who says differently is a liar. Just remind you of John's words from chapter 4, verses, verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and is now, now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And in 1 John 5, verses 11 to 12, this is, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You have the Son, you have life. You are of God. You deny the Son, you do not know God, and you do not have life. It's just that clearly. So as we look at these assurances that God provides His children, I want to ask us why. Why is it that God provides us these certainties? And just by way of review, these certainties are the assurance of having eternal life, the assurance that God will answer our prayers, the assurance of victory over sin and Satan, the assurance that, they are true, that we are truly children of God, and the assurance that Jesus is indeed the true God in eternal life. Why is it that God has given us a whole letter to, to teach us these things, to emphasize these things? Well, certainly one is to try to help people who are not saved, but think they are saved. So this letter helps them. But it's not primarily to them. This letter is primarily written to those who believe. John reiterates that time and time again, that he's writing to true believers. God is very concerned to give you the confidence that you need to live for Him. Pastor Pastor MacArthur uh, says this, and I quote, The Bible, then, is to provide for us certainties, absolutes, In this epistle in particular, the the purpose of the writer is to create certainty in the minds of true Christians, to waylay those unnecessary fears and doubts and uncertainties. That is why the word know is used 39 times in this letter, seven times in this last section, and in particular, the verses that we're looking at, verses 18 to 21. We know, we know, we know. And John ends really with a summation of why he wrote that we might know, unquote. Beloved, understand that assurance and confidence in God and confidence of who you are is critical to a healthy spiritual life and relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. 
if you're constantly worried over whether you're saved or not saved, it's very difficult to put one foot in front of the other spiritually, to put on the armor of God as we're called to, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling as we're called to if we're in doubt about who we are. And God does not want us to be in doubt. He wants us to trust Him, to trust His Word, and confidently and boldly move forward in our Christian faith, growing in Christ. And that is why He provides us this great confidence. Again, not in ourselves, but in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and in His Word. What a blessed truth. What an encouraging message the Lord has indeed given us. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, we just thank you that you love us so much, that you love your children so much, and you want them to know how much you love them by declaring to us what Christ has done, but also in declaring to us the assurances, the truths that we can be confident about as your children. Oh God, help each one of who is here this morning, who is your child, to be encouraged, to rejoice, to proclaim your excellencies as their Savior and as the God who saves them and the God who assures them of their salvation and of their, their existence as a child of God, of having experienced a new birth and a possessor of eternal life. Lord God, work in the lives of those who are here this morning or perhaps hear the message later who don't know you. They don't have that confidence. Help them to read your word. And Lord, to understand these tests of faith, both moral and theological. And if they fail the test, Lord, give them that clarity so that they might repent. Give them humility to trust in you and help them to turn away from their foolish thinking and to trust the scriptures and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that they may be saved. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and you have worked all these things out for your glory and for your people's good. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.